Hi, and welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor with me, your host, James Mitra. As this is our first episode of our new podcast, I wanted to tell you a little bit more about it before introducing today's guest. As a search firm that works with high growth, disruptive clients, JBM gets to work with some amazing people every day. Through our work, we've been fortunate enough to develop an eclectic network of entrepreneurs and business leaders who are doing some incredible things across a number of industries. I'm a huge believer in the power of mentorship and learning from those who are where you want to get to. Finding great mentors who you can learn from is one of the top tips that I'm always giving to candidates who work with JBM. And to help those of you who are looking for that mentorship, we decided to launch this podcast. In each episode, we will share the inspiring stories, advice and mentorship from those in our network to help you learn from their insights so you can apply them to your career and life. I'm always keen to get feedback, so if you have any thoughts once you've listened to this interview, please drop me a line at james at jbmc.co.uk. So, who is our first 40-minute mentor? Well, today's guest and our first mentor is Charlene Chen, the COO of BitPesa. BitPesa is an online payment platform that leverages blockchain technology to significantly lower the cost and increase the speed of business payments to, from, and within sub-Saharan Africa. I had the pleasure of sitting next to Charlene at an Innovate Finance dinner a couple of years ago, and we instantly hit it off, sharing very similar views on the importance of people and culture, and her passion for her business, BitPesa, was infectious. Charlene's story is a very interesting and inspiring one that shows what you can achieve if you choose to follow the path less well-traveled. Having started her career in consulting, she decided to take some time out to complete an MBA, which led to her moving to Ghana for three months to work with a tech startup busy internet. This trip opened her eyes to the opportunities that existed in Africa, and after completing her MBA, she went back to work with companies across Kenya and Tanzania for the best part of the last decade, before moving to London to launch BitPesa. We cover some really interesting topics in today's conversation, and I know you're going to get a lot from what Charlene has to say. So whether you're thinking of launching your own startup, considering an MBA, or thinking of going to work in a different country or continent altogether, there's something in here for everyone. So with all of that said, please enjoy my conversation with Charlene Chen. Welcome Charlene, thank you very much for being our 40-minute mentor. Given what we do at JBM, I thought we could kick things off by you running us through your CV in 30 seconds. Are you ready? Oh my goodness. James, starting me off with a challenge. Okay. Okay. Ready? Three, two, one, go. So I grew up in the US and studied computer science and psychology at Duke University. Pursued an initial career as a systems analyst at Deloitte Consulting based out of the Boston office. And although I really loved doing healthcare CRM implementations, I thought there might be something more to life. Um, so I went to get my MBA at UC Berkeley, where I focused on social entrepreneurship. I did a summer internship in Ghana, which really changed my life uh, forever and ended up moving to East Africa after I graduated in 2009 and have essentially spent the last decade living and working across sub-Saharan Africa in about 10 different countries. Wow, awesome. Slightly more than 30 seconds, but there's so Rats. much good stuff in there. <laughs> uh, lots that we'll unpack over the course of this conversation. And we obviously want to talk lots about BitPesa, but one thing that 
comes across very clearly is the passion you have for social entrepreneurship, which I know is part of your MBA. So it'd be great to understand where that came from. Is that something that you've been interested in your whole life or something that's come about later? Great question. I think that the term social entrepreneurship didn't really cross my vocabulary until I started thinking about business school. And the truth is that social entrepreneurship has really been around for a long time, really as as long as there's been humans, I'm sure. But I started thinking about it more so because I had been traveling a lot with my family growing up, but mostly to developed countries uh, across Europe and East Asia. Um, our fam- my family's from Taiwan. But I started doing some service trips through a number of churches that I was a part of, both in high school and college and post-college, in places like rural Mexico and Trinidad and rural Guatemala. So that was my first exposure to global poverty. And so when microfinance became really popular and and people were looking at it as the next silver bullet for poverty alleviation, I was very interested in microfinance, international development, and then more broadly speaking, this idea of social entrepreneurship. How can you use business and market-based approaches to uh, pursue economic development? Amazing. Well, I guess we're going to come on to what you've done in the last few years with uh, with Bitpesa later, and it kind of ties back in with that. But one thing I wanted to touch upon was your your degree in computer science, because there's a stat here that 15% of the computer science grads uh, were female in 2016-2017 in the UK. What led you to take computer science? And did you face any challenges being one of the, the few women sort of on your course? I have to really credit my father for my love of computers and my eventual career in in computer science. Growing up in in the 80s and 90s, I would say my dad treated me as sort of the tomboy of the family because I'm the youngest of three girls. So he didn't have any sons. And so when it came to tinkering around with our first PCs with, you know, really heavy, uh, I forget what the the base is called, but, you know, basically where you put the floppy disk drives and all the hardware, and then, you know, this really big monitor, and then eventually this dial-up modem that was super, super slow. You know, I was the daughter that my dad basically taught how to use computers. And so that's really where my love of technology came from, and and I have to credit my dad for giving me that exposure, which, to be honest, most little girls didn't have exposure to. Um, I was reading, actually, this great article about why there are so few female computer science majors, and it basically goes back to the fact that companies like Radio Shack were advertising computers as toys for boys Mm -hmm. and not for little girls. So I was one of the lucky few. And it was challenging when I got to my university. I was one of about five women in a computer science class of 240. So actually that that percentage of 15% uh, looks pretty high to me because, you know, back then... There were only about 5% of us uh, who were female. And I don't think I saw many challenges as a student, and certainly not when I got to Deloitte as a systems analyst, where the class was actually pretty 50-50. But what I did see is that when you look up the career ladder, 
at most IT firms and IT consulting firms, you see the number of women trickle as you mm. progress up the ranks. Yeah. And I'd like to get your thoughts on a few things around diversity, gender diversity in fintech particularly, but uh, we'll come back to that. Your dad must be very proud of getting you into computers early on and to see sort of where your career's gone. Well, well, he would have preferred I went into medicine, oh, like really? him. <laughs> but luckily my oldest sister became a doctor, so she checked that box. Good stuff. Well, I've got my, my three and a half year old daughter she's better I'm pretty sure she's better at computers than I am already she's it's amazing what kids pick up these days at yeah. school and, and just from being around technology all the time I know my my 15 year old nephew started programming when he was about six years old wow I've, she hasn't started that but I'm going to get her into it soon it's the future <laughs> brilliant I'm really interested in your journey, particularly sort of in that summer of your MBA. You interned with Busy Internet in Ghana. How did that opportunity sort of come about? And what made you take the leap into taking an internship on a totally different continent? It's a great question because most of the classmates I had at Berkeley were looking at prestigious internships at McKinsey and Google and Amazon and, and looking at you know, big name companies where they could intern, get great experience, and then hopefully get a full-time offer after graduation. For me, it was really important to do an internship in sub-Saharan Africa because, to be honest, I'd never worked there before. And so I had this interest in social entrepreneurship and international development. Uh, but other than those trips, short-term trips that I had mentioned earlier, I had never actually properly worked. And of course, three months is not very long. But I thought, well, if I'm going to dedicate my career to working in emerging markets, I might as well experience it firsthand. So that's what led me to pursue an internship, which I found through a nonprofit organization called Good Morning Africa, which places graduate students with social enterprises and entrepreneurs in Ghana specifically. Brilliant. So because of my IT background, I was lucky enough to get matched with Busy Internet, and I spent a wonderful summer uh, basically designing and implementing a CRM system, looking at org design, and so that was my first exposure to a human capital project as well, and I absolutely loved it. Wow, brilliant. And it must have made a massive impression because you spent most of the last decade in Africa. How did you decide then to go back further down the line and what do you feel you gained from your experience going and spending the time you have in Africa as opposed to your peers that went to do a more traditional route? It was an incredible experience. I think you never really fully appreciate what business is like in an emerging market until you go there and I quickly realized that I had just as much and actually more to learn from doing business across the continent than I really you know, had to give. So I think many foreigners who come to work in developing countries think, oh, you know, I'm coming to bring my skill set and I'm here to change the world and improve lives. But actually that summer in Ghana was transformative and really showing me how much I didn't know about doing business and how there are additional challenges to building and scaling a business individual uh, African countries that you don't experience in more developed economies. So it was a priceless experience, and it really opened my eyes to this idea of having a career solving really big global issues, and not to discount my beloved classmates who did go on to work at Google and McKinsey and Apple and Amazon, and, and some of them started their own companies but focused in the U.S., but I just knew that I really wanted to be a part of solving 
big, big yeah. problems that would make a big difference or at least be a small part of making a big difference. Brilliant. You alluded to some of the the big, I guess, the culture shocks of, of, of moving from the US to, to Africa and the, the amount that you learned there. Sounds like it would be useful for anyone to experience that. What were the biggest challenges making that move and how did you overcome them? It's funny. It depends really on where you're talking about. I'd say there are some African countries where I've worked that were a lot easier to settle into and then others where it was more challenging. So most of my experience living and working in Africa was in Nairobi, Kenya. And actually, I think it was surprisingly easy to transition there. And that's mainly because um, it's a very welcoming culture both from uh, local Kenyans, but also there's a, a big expatriate community. And Kenya tends to attract a lot of amazing people who are really, you know, who share this common passion for solving big issues and working with uh, locals to build businesses that benefit um, their communities and, and, and more broadly. So actually, to be honest, I, I will say I bucked the trend. It was very easy to to settle down and, and spend five years living in Kenya, which I consider to be my second home. But it, it's not without challenges. I think building a business is hard anywhere in the world. And I would say there, as I've mentioned earlier, there are additional challenges to, to doing businesses and scaling in emerging markets. One of them is definitely attracting the right talent so both recruitment, uh, developing that talent, promoting them, and kind of building a business together. So I think when you're in the Silicon Valley, there's sort of this plethora of great talent. And then it's sort of this fight to actually attract the talent, but it's not sort of an absence of it. And I'm not by any means saying there's an absence of great talent. There's amazing, amazing, amazing people across the whole continent. But you know, it just you have to work a little bit harder and have creative recruitment techniques to attract the right talent. Well, I'd like to come on to that a bit later, see how you've done that with Bitpesa. A big part of your story and, 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 and I guess which took you to Africa in the first place was your MBA. With the rising costs of MBAs and the shift from a lot of people starting to look more towards startups um, away from maybe bigger corporate businesses, uh, we get a lot of candidates that are starting to question the validity of an MBA, whether it's right for them, should they do it? So for someone that's clearly benefited from doing one, but has also experienced life in a corporate and a startup, what's your view now on, on doing an MBA? And what would be your advice to someone sort of thinking about possibly sort of undertaking one? I'll preface this by saying that my time at UC Berkeley at the Haas School of Business were two of the best years of my life and an incredible time to really um, reflect on what I'd done at Deloitte thus far and really curate my next steps in my career. So uh, without a doubt, I have no regrets. If I could go back in time, I'd absolutely do my MBA um, at Berkeley over again. I would say now, 10 years later, and thinking about the skills that I've needed to be successful as an entrepreneur, and also looking at just how our world has changed and how talent is changing, I'd say it's becoming a bit more of a commodity. I think because so many people have graduate degrees and a lot of people have MBAs, it's becoming a, a little bit more diluted, whereas I think that when MBAs were fewer, it was a, kind of a more prized, privileged or sort of a, a unique factor on your resume. I would highly recommend the MBA program 
to people who are generally interested in business and have um, a rough sense of how they would want to use the MBA program to advance their career. So I think it's not great if you already know that you have a specific interest in, in something that's more niche. So if you have a keen interest in finance and a passion for that, then I think the MBA is too general for that. You should probably pursue something like a master's in finance. If you're really into public policy or international relations, then you should probably pursue an MPA and not an MBA. So I think it is good for generalists, but it's a pretty big investment. So I think if you're going to do it, then you should think pretty carefully like how an MBA is going to specifically advance your career. And I would say it's helpful in some career paths where, like say, you know, to be a partner if that firm has a culture where they like you to have an MBA or they like you to have those extra credentials, it can be useful. But I, I'm sure we'll get to this, but I think honestly, as an entrepreneur, most of the best knowledge is experienced firsthand while building the business. Absolutely. So, and nothing really fully prepares you for the challenges you'll face building a business. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, I've spoken to a few people that almost feel like they've been told throughout time, whether it's their, their sort of tutor or, or friends have done it, that they, they've got to do an MBA to become a successful entrepreneur. And, and I always just say it really isn't necessary. Um, it can definitely help, as you said. And I think for generalists, it, it can, can be fantastic. And it, you know, you create incredible networks off the back of it, but it's definitely not a an essential thing, I think, uh, prerequisite. So I totally agree. Amazing. Well, I think we've covered some brilliant ground on on the the earlier years of your career, and um, I really want to get on to talking about Bipesa, which is an incredible business. Do you mind telling our listeners what it is all about, how the idea for Bipesa came about, and sort of yeah, how you and your co-founder decided to to launch it? I'd be happy to share the genesis story of Bipesa. So. As I mentioned earlier, when you're working in a place like Nairobi, you end up meeting amazing people who share a passion for solving big problems and just rolling up their sleeves and doing cool, big things. And one of those people was an amazing woman named Elizabeth Rossiello, uh, who uh, we had been friends for years prior to starting Vipessa together. Um, basically, I'd met socially, and, and both were doing social enterprise-related work, but in different sectors. And so in 2013, at the end of the year, I was looking for new opportunities. I'd left uh, the nonprofit organization uh, that I had been working at for four years, and ICT for Agriculture, and knew that I wanted to stay working in Africa, uh, but wanted to do something a bit more commercial. So I wanted to transition from the nonprofit sector back to something more for-profit. And she said, well, I got some angel funding to start Africa's first Bitcoin remittances company. And I said, what's Bitcoin? <laughs> um, and I Googled it. I thought, whoa, this is really interesting. Like, this is a really cool concept. And you know, this could really have legs. And I love this idea of significantly reducing the cost of remittances to Africa, which end up being about twice the global cost of remittances anywhere else in the world. So at the beginning of 2014, about 
almost uh, a little bit over four years ago, I joined the company and together we built Bitpasa. The vision and mission has, has pivoted a bit to be more B2B, so it's more focused on businesses than retail remittances now. And our vision and mission is to reduce the friction of doing business in frontier markets by easing the friction of cross-border payments. So we, our whole vision is to increase the liquidity of local African currencies, um, increase interoperability so that money can um, flow in and out of the continent more quickly and cheaply, and also between frontier markets uh, within the continent and beyond to the Middle East and the Far East. I think everyone here at JBM gets excited about businesses with such a strong mission and vision. And it sounds like you guys have, have done an incredible job so far and that there's so much so much more you can still do. But it's a, it's an, it's a, it's a brilliant business. So congratulations on your success thus far. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm sure it, it hasn't been without its challenges. For anyone that is thinking about launching their own business and those that are maybe in the early stage of a startup, uh, what advice would you give to them to ensure or to help ensure it, its success? And perhaps we can talk a little bit as well about some of the challenges you faced and how you overcame them. First off, to anyone who's listening, who's either started their own early stage business or is thinking about it, kudos. Uh, it's one of the most amazing, rewarding things you can do and also one of the most challenging uh, professionally. But Highly recommend it as someone who was not a born entrepreneur and sort of fell into entrepreneurship. If I could go back in time and, and think about advice that I wish I had had, I would say not to rush too much. Um, I think sometimes when you're really excited about a new idea and building something, and of course, entrepreneurs tend to be the kind of people who love starting new things and building them. It is quite an investment of time and money and energy. And there's an opportunity cost because certainly there are other things that you could be doing with your time, energy, and money. So I think it's important to be really thoughtful about why it is that you're doing what you're doing. Is it that you have a really good idea that is going to make a huge impact? Is that what's important to you? Or is it you've thought of an idea that think there's a really great business opportunity for and could potentially generate a lot of money for you and your employees, et cetera, you know, so the, sort of the financial allure, you know, or some other totally different reason. So I think it's really important to understand like why you're actually building this business. And then once you've got that good idea and you're committed to the why, making sure that you have product market fit. I think there's a lot of great ideas in theory, but then when tested in the market, aren't actually viable at all. So I think sometimes it's easy as an early stage entrepreneur to get really beholden and really tied to a certain idea or a certain product. And then it's really hard to pivot or sort of change tack when it doesn't quite mesh. So either you don't have the right product or you don't have the right market or you don't have either. So I think it's it's worth spending that extra time before rushing into, you know, starting to really build a big team and invest a bunch of tech, you know, before you're really sure that at least you're starting with a solid great idea that definitely has customers who want to buy whatever it is you're selling. That's great advice. That's great advice. What did you find sort of maybe in the early years was the most difficult bit for you what did what was what kept you up at night in those first sort of six 12 months 
I think what was most challenging about the early years at Vipessa was actually that very challenge of finding the right product market fit. Because we were really fortunate. We found some great niche use cases in the beginning. So one I already described, which is lowering the cost of remittances to Africa. A second surprise use case was finding that there were a lot of Kenyans who were struggling to get paid or basically they were providing services abroad, but then getting paid into PayPal accounts. And since they didn't have U.S. bank accounts, they had to find some other Kenyan who who did, and then that Kenyan might charge them 17% to convert it into Kenyan shillings. So we found this sort of niche use case where we explored the idea of freelancers in Africa getting paid in Bitcoin and then Bitpesa would provide that conversion of Bitcoin into their local African currency, whether that was mobile money or direct to a bank account. So those early years were filled with these really beautiful discoveries of, of niche use cases that were high impact, but not necessarily scale. And I think that's a big decision for a lot of entrepreneurs is, are you going to stay retail? And, you know, so you may get thousands and thousands of customers but so you have to have a really good customer acquisition strategy, at, but it's relatively low revenue per customer. Or you go B2B, so you might have to acquire fewer customers, but maybe the sales cycle is longer, um, even if you get a higher revenue per customer. So I think those early years were about uh, finding the right product market fit that would scale, which uh, drove our decision to pivot to more of a B2B model. One thing that I remember when we first met really struck me about you was your passion for the people side of business, which I share. And clearly you've built a really strong team and a, a positive culture is, is key to any successful business. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on on uh, sort of building a high performing team, how you've done it, what's your approach been at Bitpesa and if, yeah, and, and has that kind of thinking changed over time? Honestly, the best asset we have at Bitpesa is absolutely our people. And we're really proud. We've grown the team to about 70 people now over the last five years. And that's across five offices in Nairobi, Kenya, Lagos, Nigeria, Dakar, Senegal, London, Madrid. And uh, we have a Topco in Luxembourg, but um, not not really uh, an office there. So I think it's really important to set culture from the very beginning uh, because I think it sets the tone for the kind of employees that you attract, the ones you retain, and the ones who end up being really successful at the company. So I don't know that we necessarily articulated our, our culture until the last couple of years where we made a concerted effort to define our core values, which are teamwork, customer centricity, accountability, flexibility, and resiliency. So I think the ethos that we have at Bipesa is definitely a work hard, play hard environment. So we have high expectations of our staff, but we also you know, try to create an environment where they're not just giving their all and giving their talent and giving their skills, but we're also developing them professionally and creating the kind of employee loyalty that will last us throughout the year. So we've been really, really lucky to have um, you know, some of the employees that we have today are ones that were with us in the very beginning uh, when we were at just one office in Nairobi. So I think it's about 
as we scale, as we open up new offices, making sure that we're really intentional about the culture that we have. And I think that starts with even the recruitment process. So we, we work hard to incorporate questions that test our core values in the recruitment process so that people are actually evaluated even before they get to BitPesa. And hopefully that is a good filtering mechanism. It's part of the onboarding packet. So, you know, when you do your orientation, you actually get reinforced with the core values and what they mean at Bipesa. And then it also plays out to the people that we retain and promote, or even nobody really loves to talk about termination, but the people we terminate. So I think culture is all about the kind of environment that you create. And and it's also living by those core values and how you recruit, retain and um, terminate. I think it's a, a, a great way to look at things in a very refreshing approach. I think we often see that the best clients that we work with are the ones that have a transparent, collaborative culture. And it's great to hear that in this day and age, there are, people do move around and, and leave roles. But um, we often find those that, that the companies where the, the employees are still there after a number of years are the ones that have got that culture piece right and continue to you know, buy into the mission and the vision and, uh, and, and feel like they're developing constantly. And that seems to be a major theme for us around why why you would stay in a business these days is is often about those things as opposed to money and and, and status and things like that which is uh, uh, i think uh, the way the world is going what does the future hold for bitpesa charlene Wh- where are you up to in 2019 and what's the kind of next sort of three to five years look like for the business we've been so so fortunate to experience tremendous growth so we've been growing it ranges from year to year but uh 3x to 5x year over year, um, which is great. And it's so amazing to see us transacting as, uh, you know, unforeseen amounts of, of, of payments, you know, that we didn't really imagine would happen in the beginning. So we've been growing really fast, both as a team and in terms of revenue and transaction volume. But now we're really focused on on what's next. And that comes in a few different forms, which is uh, namely expansion. So now that we've really proven that our product uh, works well in the markets where we operate across East and West Africa, uh, we're starting to expand within the continent. So um, we incorporated in South Africa last year, and so we're um, starting up operations there. I'm going to Morocco in a few days to explore the market there. We're looking at Egypt. We were accepted into the Abu Dhabi Global Markets regulatory sandbox last year. So we're also exploring the UAE. And then we have a new partnership with a Japanese insurance company called Sampo, which is uh, helping us facilitate transactions with large corporates in in Japan who are making payments uh, to and from Africa. So really the name of, of 2019 is, is about global expansion and, and just really scaling up, scaling up our team, scaling up our products and scaling up globally. World domination. It sounds amazing. <laughs> yes. <we're laughs> um, oh, that's it. I, I didn't realize quite how many countries you were moving into. So that's, that's very exciting to hear. Charlie, we talked a, a bit about it earlier, but I wanted to come back to diversity. we relatively recently had International Women's Day. So I'd be interested to get your perspective on where the fintech industry is when it comes to diversity. Do you feel like there's enough progress being made? And if not, what's your view on what needs to be done? 
Well, I feel privileged to live in in London where I feel like there's constantly these great programs uh, really promoting diversity in tech. And I think that's both women in tech, persons of color in tech. So I've been really, really pleased to see there's a lot of programs and um, focused on increasing diversity, um, awards, programs, et cetera. And I think I'm seeing both in my own company and when I talk to other entrepreneurs, there's definitely a concerted effort to recruit more diversity, however your company defines that. So I think we're seeing a lot of progress in the UK. I can't speak as broadly as the rest of Europe, but I think definitely in the UK, there's a lot around it. I think we're making progress in terms of the numbers, for sure. I think there's, when I go to conferences, I feel like compared, you know, today compared to, you know, when I first entered the industry five years ago and there were like five women in the Bitcoin industry, (laughs) we've come a long way in terms of representation of women, for sure. And you're seeing a lot of amazing women in leadership um, in fintechs. Like um, I was just talking to someone about Ann Bowden, who runs Starling Bank. And I love Leanne Kemp, who runs Everledger, which is a different sort of blockchain company. There was an uh, amazing woman, uh, Megan Kaywood. I think we both saw her speak yeah, last yeah, week, yeah. didn't we? <laughs> exactly. New head of digital at Barclays, who was very, very inspirational. So I think certainly there's representation and there's numbers. But it's still a conversation. So I think this is just the beginning and we still have a long way to go to basically see those numbers increase across the ranks. Because I think what I still hear is it's it's like my experience in consulting where you have a lot of even representation lower in the org chart. Uh, but then when you get to the executive leadership level, there's still underrepresentation, and that's on the women's side. And then I'd say even more so with persons of color. So I think there's still a long way to go, but I'm happy to see a lot of progress being made, at least uh, in the UK. Yeah, no, I, and I completely agree with that. And I think it makes it even more inspirational to, to see a company like Bitpasta with two female leaders in yourself and Elizabeth and uh, I, I totally agree I think we're making s- slow and steady progress and hopefully this won't be a conversation that we'll be needing to have in, in 10 years time you've worked across three different continents in your career how do they work vary when it comes to the diversity and inclusion agenda and have there been any more sort of specific challenges that you faced in in the US or here or, or, or in Africa in relation to that so I would say that diversity and inclusion is, is something very important to BitPesa. First, from the gender lens, Elizabeth and I are very proud to be female founders. And in fact, if you go back in our history, we actually had more women on the leadership team than we had men because our first CFO, Amy Ludlam, who has now moved on to be an entrepreneur in the States, of a company called California Dreamin. There were the three of us and a male CTO, Bob Amand, who's ex-Google. So actually, we started as being more female execs than males. But we think of diversity more broadly, and that is not just gender diversity, but also of nationality and diversity of thought. And I think that the diversity of Vipassa is one of the most beautiful things about our company because I counted that we have at any given time between a dozen 
to a dozen and a half nationalities. We have Nigerians, Kenyans, Senegalese, Ugandans, Spanish, English, Irish, French, Americans, Taiwanese, Indians. It's it's all colors of the rainbow. So I think the beauty of that is that we have so much diversity of culture, diversity of thought. People are coming from different viewpoints, different homes, thinking about the customer in different ways. And I think that is all a huge asset. On the flip side of the double-edged sword, it can create opportunity for cross-cultural miscommunication. So that's one thing that we've tried to invest a lot of time in whenever we do a retreat or we we do company-wide meetings is to really spend time talking about the different dimensions of communication, whether that's how you give negative feedback, uh, how you see time and punctuality. Are you more hierarchical or more kind of collaborative? You know, are you about top-down decisions or more consensus? So it's part of the open vocabulary. So we talk a lot about, you know, remember that not everybody in the company thinks exactly the same way that you do. So it's really important to listen first and also think about where your colleague might be coming from. And I think that transcends across how you manage your direct reports, how you manage upwards to your manager, and how you communicate with your peers across the organization, not to mention remotely, because we're 70 people across five offices. So a lot of our communication is online, and and some things can be misconstrued when you're sending a Slack message versus when you're communicating in person. I'd imagine, especially as a business that's evolving at the pace of which bit better is you're having to constantly evolve these policies and procedures but but by having that kind of mantra I think you're I'm pretty confident you guys will, will continue to have an amazing culture and continue to, to attract the right sorts of people for it right so I think we're getting to a point where I'd like to delve into the bit that I guess is particularly prevalent to JBM which is around advice for our, our listeners uh, around their careers and I think a big part of that for me is is balance. Uh, it, it's the careers, of course, are very important as in the day to day, the nine to five. But um, I think we find, as we said earlier, a lot of people are learning as much in their five to nine than they are the nine to five. Given your global role and the amount of travel you have to do, how do you find balance in your life? I couldn't echo enough the importance of work life balance. And I would start by saying that, you know, just remember that work is really important and it is what we spend most of our waking hours doing, but we shouldn't be defined by what we do, but who we are. So I think that's been really helpful as an entrepreneur where it's very easy for the work uh, to supersede life. I think relationships are so important, Um, not just at work. I think it's great to have strong relationships at work, but also outside. I am so grateful for all my girlfriends who are always there for a cup of coffee. I'd like to say a glass of wine, but I'm allergic to alcohol. You know, just to chat over a good meal, just about how things are going, not just at work, but also just to remember that you're someone else outside of work. 
I also have a really supportive partner. My partner, Sean, is also an entrepreneur. So he, he, of all people, understands what it's like to build a business and vice versa. And so I think having a partner who is really supportive through thick and thin, through the high, you know, the highs and lows of, of startup life has been really, really incredibly valuable to me. And then also having interests and passions outside of work. So, uh, for example, I love salsa dancing and I started doing Rueda, uh, which is a, a Cuban, a type of Cuban salsa here in London. And then uh, I also salsa dance when I'm traveling in Nairobi. And then I also started picking up a lot more outdoor activities. So I love hiking wherever I travel in Africa, climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, climbed Mount Kenya, learned how to scuba dive, learned how to horseback ride. I even learned how to fly planes, um, these like four-seater Cessnas. So I think seizing the day and just remembering that, you know, you have to live life and life is too short to just spend it working. And, and yes, we should work on meaningful things, but we really, really can't let it dominate because entrepreneurship and, and business in general is a marathon, not a sprint. And if you burn out too early you know, into your entrepreneurial career, I think you'll find you're going to be too tired <laughs> <laughs> to, to do fun things when you have the time. Um, so, Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's amazing to hear that. And I think, you know, I'll, I'll admit I've struggled at times to f- find the right balance, uh, kind of constantly feeling like you're letting someone down, whether it's your, the, from the work side or the family side or, or friends. And actually, I think when you, yeah, seizing the day is a great way to look at it. Um, and some of the things you mentioned, I really need to have a go at the, the sal- <laughs> I don't know if I'd be any good at salsa dancing, but um, I'll definitely give it a crack. And I hear that you also speak a little bit of Swahili as well. So is that you pick that up along the way? Do you speak any other languages? I did pick up some Swahili while working in East Africa, um, which was a quintessential skill when communicating with smallholder farmers in, in, in rural East Africa. I also learned French growing up from first through 12th grade, and then I switched to Spanish in university and, and had the pleasure of studying abroad in Madrid for a semester. Amazing. Is that where the, the salsa dancing first came about? Yes, that is where I took my first salsa lessons. Amazing. Good stuff. <laughs> um, well, we can talk about that. Uh, not over wine, but over a coffee. Exactly. <laughs> um, amazing. So one of the things that I think I wanted to pick into was around pivoting. So we've talked, uh, you know, lots of candidates at the moment are going through these the, potential career change we've seen a lot more people wanting to join the gig economy uh, set up on their own move from maybe consulting to industry or into a tech startup and it's a daunting scary thing what's been the most important pivot that you've made in your career and what were the sort of questions you asked yourself before making that jump well I feel like I've made two significant pivots um the first one as I shared was that pivot from large, large corporate Deloitte consulting into the nonprofit sector. And then I think the pivot from, so same emerging market, Africa, but to a fintech and and into the world of entrepreneurship. So I'd say that I really made two pivots, but I think both times what was really important to evaluate was, I kind of have this approach where you reflect on where you've been, where you are, and then where you're going. So I think Whenever you think about a pivot, think about what it is that you bring to the table. So um, in the example of, of consulting, what I really took away from my time at Deloitte was you know, fundamental 
skills of project management, client management, how to stay organized, business processes. So a lot of the discipline that I think is essential to any business model. And then looking at your present, okay, so what are the skills that I really want to gain? You know, so uh, for example, when I was thinking about starting a company, I felt like, okay, well, I know how to do business in a big company and in a non-emerging market. So I'm going to have a lot to learn about, you know, how is business run? How do you even incorporate a business? What is the talent situation like here? Even things that I hadn't done before at all, like regulatory affairs. So I think it's it's important to kind of look at like, what are the skills that I already have and that I can bring to the table and how I can add value to this next company or this next position, and then kind of looking ahead to what are the key skills that I would gain theoretically by pursuing this opportunity. And then I think if that feels right to you, then you're probably making a good pivot. If you feel like, oh, I actually already know all the skills that I'd need for this position, um, or I could already do this without learning, then, well, then it's probably not a pivot. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, great. Thank you. And uh, we're coming towards the end of our 40 minutes. It might be slightly longer than 40 minutes, <laughs> but it's been such a such an amazing story. I interview, I guess I interview lots of people every day. And given the amount of growth you've done, I know you, you'll have done lots of interviewing too. So without giving too many secrets away, what are the things that you look for in interviews when you're hiring for your team? For me, one of the most important things that I look for in when someone's interviewing for Bipesa or any organization that I've been a part of is motivation. So a lot of people can come to you with the right skills and say the right things, but I think you can tell a lot about a candidate by the way they answer the question, you know, why Bipesa or why this role? And I think that's really important because it, well, it forces the candidate to articulate why they really want the opportunity. But I think there's a certain authenticity that any, you know, anyone with decent EQ as an interviewer can, can see. And I think, especially when you think about startups and, and young companies, you will face a lot of challenges. And, and oftentimes what we have laid out in, in the job advert it sure it may be what you're doing at the beginning of your role but things evolve so quickly in a growing company that we may need to ask you to do something well tangential or related but you know that's something that's not in your job description at the very beginning and so i think we're looking for people who have that passion for our our mission and our vision because that's what's going to carry them through even when their role changes I'd say the second skill that I'm really looking for or kind of character type is that flexibility, creativity, and resiliency, which is embedded into the core values of BitPesa. I find that the people who do best at our company are ones that can literally roll with the punches. And when plan A doesn't work out, they're right there ready with a plan B. And when B doesn't work out with a C and a D and to all the way to plan Z if that's what it takes. And I confess that I haven't quite figured out the secret sauce to interviewing for that, but that's an aspirational goal. Is I would love to really be able to refine my interview process and our company's interview process to really figure out 
you know, if people are going to be able to push through the challenges that inevitably they will face and, and be resilient and flexible as they tackle challenges in their role. Great. Thank you. Charlene, <laughs> it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for giving us your time and sharing your insights and your amazing story. We all wish you and Bitpesa all the luck in the world for the next year ahead and uh, very excited to see where your story goes. Thanks so much, James. It's been a pleasure. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the 40 Minute Mentor brought to you by JBM. So if you'd like to tell us what you thought of the podcast or find out how we can help you with your next career move, please do get in touch at info at jbmc.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you.